to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. Considering how much has been written about the Civil War, it takes a certain amount of intellectual bravado to tackle questions that have already been examined by giants in the field. Questions like, was the Civil War a total war? Was it a just war? Professor Aaron Sheehan Dean's latest book goes beyond offering new answers to old questions. It challenges the questions themselves and asks us to see the war in a new way altogether. We'll talk with him about the book, The Calculus of Violence, How Americans Fought the Civil War, tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Are you ready for a disaster? If you are like many people in the world, that answer may sadly be no. Disasters happen unexpectedly to people just like you every day. Tune into Preparing for the Unexpected with business continuity and disaster planning expert Alex Bullock. The show will not only help you better prepare for a disaster itself, but also to prepare you, your place of employment, and community for the aftermath. Emotionally, financially, and with a better level of awareness and a stronger feeling of resiliency. Tune in Thursdays at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all of our show archives on demand. All from your iOS, Amazon Kindle, or Android device. Download it from the Apple App Store, Amazon, or Google Play, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you tonight from the Civil War Talk Radio World Headquarters Annex in the field at 205 Oxford Road in Greenville, North Carolina. Not speaking to you from the campus of East Carolina University, where we normally come out of, but uh, spending the evening at home. Still uh, not speaking for the campus, nor will my guest speak for anyone but himself, as we always do here. On campus, there's basketball tonight, the men's team is playing, the women's team is playing up at Connecticut, they should lose that game by 100 points. It's uh, National Signing Day here in uh, in uh, college football land at East Carolina and other places, and the Pirates are loading up the roster for the next year. We learned recently uh, the coach that got fired, uh, Scotty Montgomery, has landed a job somewhere 
I think in the Big Ten as an assistant, which means we don't have to pay his salary anymore. We are still paying the salary of the last athletic director, however, who, whose incompetence got him kicked out, yet is not getting him a new job, so we have, we're still on the hook for his old one. Uh, earlier tonight before the show, my wife Emily asked, could you not get such a job where you get yourself fired and they have to pay you for years afterward? And I thought, what if history professors had that kind of a gig where commit malpractice in class, teach World War II was the cause of World War One, and then you get fired, and until you get another job, they keep paying you. That would be the upside. The downside, if you didn't have tenure and they could just do that, is we would be like football coaches. I would have taught by this time at seven or eight different junior colleges east of the Mississippi. Uh, we'd be moving the kids every year or two. It would, it would not be a happy lifestyle. So I, I don't begrudge our ex-coaches their hundreds of thousands of dollars uh, at least we get to do something uh, consistent, and that has a long-term payoff for the nation. Uh, before going further, let me say thank you to everyone who has sent condolences on the loss of our uh, longtime feline companion, Candy, who used to sleep in the very room I'm sitting in now, and in fact used to climb on the keyboard and howl uh, toward the microphone during the show on occasion. When, when I did shows from home. Uh, she's gone, and I appreciate the, the kind thoughts a number of you sent. Also, another reminder from last week is that to the extent you feel the tug of conscience telling you, I should help out to keep Civil War Talk Radio what it is, uh, I'll send a donation to the uh, through the website www dot impedimentsofwar.org click on the PayPal button and contribute to the book and or libation fund there Uh, and as I said last week uh, some percentage of your donation should you feel moved to do that will go toward uh, an effort to uh, reopen and and preserve the McGregor Public Library in Highland Park, Michigan the library where I first read Bruce Canton's first saw Bruce Canton's work first got interested in the world of books in, in a way. There was a small branch library I could walk to from our house. McGregor Library was down by closer where my grandmother uh, used to live, where my mother had grown up, further closer to downtown Detroit. And uh, going there was a big adventure. I was uh, like two miles from home, and it was like walking in the New York Public Library. It was so big and, and elegant and just cool in every way. And it's been shuttered for years now, and there's there's some hope of revitalizing it. Uh, it would be a great thing for the next generation. Uh, another great thing for the next generation would be if they wanted to hear me speak in public. Uh, I'll be doing that at the Petersburg Civil War Roundtable on April 4th. If you're in the Petersburg, Virginia area, come on by. Or the following month, May 13th, Raleigh, North Carolina. Again, Civil War Roundtable. Uh, that's, I think, uh, Monday evening. Uh, come and join us there. It's always uh, good to see people from the, uh, the Civil War uh, talk radio world, CWTR, at a CWRT meeting. So be happy to see you there and chat with you. Uh, after that, in June, I will be at the Civil War Institute at Gettysburg College, not speaking, just hanging out and meeting speakers for next year's shows and 
talking to people uh, like you who listen to the show and are able to come. CWI is a great event. If you can find your way there, June 14th through 19, 2019, go to www.gettysburg.edu slash CWI, Civil War Institute. And as always, the uh, This Hell Ground Tour coming up, stephenambrosetours.com is the place to go to learn about that. Looking forward to a, a full bus this year, May 18 through 26. And back here at home, last bit of uh, housekeeping next week, uh, a longtime friend whose uh, friendship long predates uh, even this 15-year-old podcast, uh, Dan Weinberg of the Civil War Bookshop in Chicago will be here to share what's going on in the world of Lincoln uh, scholarship and collecting especially. So looking forward to chatting with Dan next week. Caroline Janey will be our guest on the 20th. Uh, she's edited a recent volume, Petersburg to Appomattox, The End of the War in Virginia. She's probably written uh, uh, at least one, if not two, three, maybe five books since she was last on the show. So we'll get caught up with her as well. Thanks always to Mark Gaffney, who keeps the Facebook page and the website up to date. That's where you find out what's going on. Tonight we're going to talk to another old friend of the show, someone who was uh, a guest here in 2007. Uh, At that time, he was uh, editing a book for Osprey uh, Publishing in the UK, which normally does hobby-oriented history books, but they were doing a collection of Civil War essays, and I was... Uh, part of the the author's list for that. And our guest, uh, Professor Aaron Sheehan-Dean, was the editor. But now uh, we have moved on from that, and he is the author of The Calculus of Violence, How Americans Fought the Civil War. Uh, Aaron, are you there? I am, Jerry. Good to talk to you. You too. Uh, I, I was looking at the notes from our conversation back in 2007, which... I would have guessed was like four years ago, but turns out to be over a decade ago. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, I would have guessed that as well. Time has flown by, but let, let me repeat what I said in the introduction uh, when you were last on. I opened in the, the pre-show teaser, I said uh, this program has hosted some of the giants of Civil War scholarship. You've all heard of uh, Jim McPherson, Gary Gallagher, and so on. Our guest today is someone you may not have heard of. You may not have heard of yet, but the odds are you will. Aaron Cheyenne Dean, you were at University of North Florida at the time. And we talked about the book you were editing and some books you were working on that have since been published. Uh, and I'm happy to say I, I was right. I think uh, anyone listening to the show has certainly heard of your work by this time. And now that you've really published uh, an important major work that everyone's going to be talking about in the field. So I congratulate myself on... on uh, uh, picking picking the horses before they get out of the starting gate. <laughs> well, I'm certainly happy you're right. That's a very generous assessment of things. But so let let's jump right in. Well, actually, where uh, remind us where you're teaching right now? You're you're no longer at North Florida, of course. Uh, no, I'm not. Us, but... I, I'm due due west, so I'm at Louisiana State University uh, in Baton Rouge, um, and uh, it's a fun place to be. Um, you had mentioned reading Bruce Catton, so mm-hmm. this is this is where uh, T. Harry Williams was, um, and then after him, of course, Bill Cooper and Charlie Royster. So it's a place with a lot of Civil War um, feeling about it, which is nice. It, it, it's a, a great heritage, and uh, 
Yeah. Uh, LSU Press is also one of the great presses for, for Civil War history. Uh, right. As is UNC Press. Now, this book is Harvard University Press, and I don't think it's been some time since I reminded listeners that I have a degree from Harvard University, and I try to remind them that at every opportunity, so that just gave me an opening. Thank you. <laughs> uh, yeah. This book, um, let me just start off the top. Why, why such a big, how did you feel ready to take on such a, a big conceptual project? Um, well, um, mostly because I didn't have any idea that's what it was going to be. So I was, um, I was, I was asked to write an essay for what was going to be a volume of, of essays, a sort of comparative civil wars, mostly 20th century pieces, the Russian and the Greek and the Finnish. And then the U.S. Civil War chapter was going to be kind of the 19th century counterweight to all those. And I thought, well, that seems like an interesting and manageable project. I don't know anything about those other conflicts, so I'll learn a lot. And I started writing, and I hit 20,000 words, um, which is twice as long as they had asked for, the editor had asked for, and I thought, hmm, there's more here than I anticipated. <laughs> and, and so, you know, um, as we often do, I think, well, at least as, as I feel like I've done, sort of stumble into things rather than mm-hmm. map them out with any degree of, of foreknowledge. And there has been, as you know, of course, a lot of good writing on the nature of the war, but I, I felt like the, the more I kind of returned to that, you know, books by Mark Grimsley and Mark Neely and, and folks like that, that there were still a lot of things left to talk about, particularly as it related to violence against non-combatants and how both sides shaped those policies. So I would say it sort of escalated, and I did my best to try to kind of wrangle it together, but it did take quite a while. Well, one of the, uh, in, in some ways, then, this book fits into the current trend of focusing on uh, irregular warfare, guerrilla warfare. Uh, you know, Dan Sutherland's book is, is of course, uh, yeah. at the top of that list in, in the public eye, but there are many others. Uh, many people have been writing about that. It, do you think that has a great deal to do with the where the United States military has been engaged for the last two decades? I do. I mean, you know, like like everybody who works in our field, I did my best not to kind of look around for direct analogs or parallels or try mm-hmm. to write this, you know, so that I could get on Sunday morning talk shows and, and talk about irregular warfare. But we are part of the United States, and, you know, we I read the newspaper and 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 so I think sort of inevitably the sorts of questions we're asking and the way we're asking them are um, a reflection of, yeah, what's been going on in terms of American military actions and how I think the public has sort of paid attention to those or not. Um, you know, the, the sort of waxed and waned here over the last decade and a half or so, I would argue. So is the guerrilla war in, in the Civil War... Uh, where do you put it on the, the spectrum between the traditional view of it's a sideshow, it's way out west across the Mississippi, or a few guys on horses in, in Kentucky or Tennessee, and the the view that the, the, the strongest view is that it's the main show, uh, that, that really Lee yeah. and Grant are the sideshow. Where, where do you fit in that spectrum? <laughs> well, I wouldn't put Grant on the side, but I do think the guerrilla war is very important. Um, for a couple of reasons. I mean, first of all, even if we only included 
the kind of trans-Mississippi West from Missouri down to Texas and Louisiana as the space where that where the guerrilla war occurred, and that's not accurate because there's guerrilla conflicts in every Confederate state and several Union ones. But even just that sort of spectrum, that that zone, that those those states house three million people, um, and this was their experience, certainly in Missouri and Arkansas and much of northern Louisiana and in parts of Texas. That was the experience of the war, and so for those people, the guerrilla war was in fact the only one. But all across the Confederacy, there are um, there are guerrilla conflicts, and, and part of why it's important is because it changes the way the Union has to fight. And Dan Sutherland's book, A, a Savage War, has looked at this mm-hmm. in terms of the kind of... Um, he was. I think that book sort of still helps us answer the bigger question of why the war ended when it did and the way it did, and, and his answer mm-hmm. was that the, the Union's counterinsurgency strategy um, defeated the guerrillas, and it actually brought the Confederate defeat faster. And I think that he's right, but I was interested in a different question, which was how does the presence of guerrillas change the way Union soldiers and officers think about warfare? And and that happens in places that aren't directly impacted by guerrillas. Those policies change sort of across the board uh, within the Union Army. Let's take a short break and come back on that point, because that's a, a major one, certainly, in the book. Uh, we're talking tonight with Aaron Sheehan Dean, author of The Calculus of Violence, How Americans Fought the Civil War. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com Psych Up Live with host Dr. Suzanne Phillips offers a psychological perspective on coping with common and current life issues. This show addresses topics as varied as marital stress, insomnia, depression, raising teens, campus violence, and building self-resilience. Listen in as Dr. Phillips and her guest experts share the latest in books, findings, and information that will inform and enhance your life journey. Psych Up Live is heard every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on The Voice of America Variety Channel. All around the outermost rim of the shield, he set the mighty stream of the river Oceanus, creating Achilles' shield in Homer's The Iliad, Book 18. Rachel Carson in The Sea Around Us said, All at last, return to the sea, to Oceanus, the ocean river, like the ever-flowing stream of time, the beginning and the end. Moyer's Environmental Dialogues with Dr. Rob Moyer offers lively dialogue and revealing narrative inquiry into how individuals are overcoming obstacles and creating a greener and blue planet Earth. Tune in Thursdays at 3 p.m. Eastern, 12 noon Pacific on the Voice America Variety Channel. The latest business information is made simple with the Voice America Business Network. The professionals in the business world bring you live talk radio shows featuring an array of business topics, strategies for building wealth, sales and marketing, stock trading, investing, and business technology. Voice America business hosts are professionals in their fields and bring to the airwaves weekly business discussions that offer up-to-date information, advice, and education. The Voice America Business Network. The bottom line in business talk. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com. 
listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with Aaron Sheehan-Dean, author of The Calculus of Violence, How Americans Fought the Civil War. It is an exploration of uh, big questions about the war. What were the limits, if any, on violence? How does the American Civil War compare uh, to experiences elsewhere? And we left off with a question about guerrilla war, which runs throughout this book. Uh, and its relative importance. Uh, Darren, you said one of the things you were interested in exploring was how the existence of irregular warfare changed the way Union soldiers and policymakers, uh, and the public for that matter, thought about the war. How can Talk about what kind of effect that had. Right, well, you know, Lincoln's um, approach from the beginning of the war was to try to fight it in a way that would enable white Southerners to return to a union they still loved. Mm-hmm. And so this is what gives rise to, as Mark um, Grimsley called it, the Rosewater Strategy and other people, that is the kind of gentlest um, way possible to fight in which your, your violence and destruction is directed only at enemy combatants, not at non-combatants. And part of the problem with guerrillas is that, um, particularly as northern troops are invading into the south and occupying southern places, and are sort of extended there, they become very vulnerable and subject to very easy guerrilla attacks. This happens um, early in Arkansas in 1862, and the result is that the Union has to then recalibrate. And, and the famous instances that um, you know we know a little bit uh, occur along the Mississippi River. Um, William Tecumseh Sherman is there in Arkansas in 1862, and when his transports that are bringing both soldiers but also a lot of non-combatants down, Teamsters and other folks to supply the armies, as they're moving south from Memphis, when they're fired upon, um, he can try to, you know, land a ship and then chase after those guerrillas, and that's usually quite fruitless. So he winds up adopting a strategy of holding civilians responsible from the locations where those attacks are launched. Um, and it's a, it's a pretty rough... Um, policy in the sense that it's hard to know if you're actually identifying the people responsible. Um, you know, and there are a couple of famous instances. Randolph, Tennessee, the whole town is, is sort of evacuated and the buildings are burned and, and more or less the same thing happens in Donaldsonville, Louisiana under Benjamin Butler, who's operating under the same set of constraints. Um, and he has a fascinating conversation with the Sisters of Mercy and their, their convent and school there in which he says, I wish that I didn't have to hold you responsible, um, but we have no way of getting to these guerrillas, and they're clearly supported by people claiming to be non-combatants. So there's an escalation there of the Union policy that's quite counterproductive in terms of the broader political goals of the Union, because the, the punishment for that, although it's non-lethal in most cases, that is, this is not lethal violence turned against civilians, it's nonetheless uh, a great deal, it causes a great deal of hardship, obviously, if your home is burned or your town is destroyed. And so those people become quite embittered against the Union. And, and that's a way in which that, that guerrilla policy or the, the action of guerrillas starts reshaping the war um, and, and really sort of pulling it out of what Lincoln hoped would be very high kind of boundaries at the start. One of the arguments uh, that I 
saw here is that people have argued the Civil War is the beginning of modern warfare. It's the first total war. Others have said it's the last Napoleonic War. Uh, your your take seems to be that, that those are, I won't say useless questions, but uh, that the war is both one of modern style, almost unbounded violence, and at other times extremely carefully limited targeted violence. It, it's it's both at the same time. Is that an accurate characterization? Yeah, that is. Um, and I, I've tried that. I've tried to craft that in a way that didn't sound just wishy washy, um, mm-hmm. because it's it's more satisfying as a reader. You can kind of come away with a sense of. You know, this is where the bloodletting of the t- awful 20th century began, or this is the kind of concluding act in a, in a period that I wish we could return to, um, both perspectives of which have a tendency to make the reader um, feel a little more satisfied um, mm-hmm. than I think, you know, we should leave our readers feeling. And so I didn't really ask those questions or interrogate them. I mean, I did my best to kind of situate what was happening in the time and to recognize that, as you say, the... the in some respects, the violence is quite restrained, certainly between white regular combatants, that is, men in uniform on regular battlefields with chains of command that are clear. The laws of war are observed. Men uh, sort of wage battle fairly. They take prisoners. They surrender. They offer medical aid to their enemies. Um, and then at other points, um, certainly with regard to noncombatants, I mean, uh, sorry, with regard to irregular combatants, and then <laughs> as the Confederate treated black soldiers... Um, the violence is quite often unjust. So, the, um, as I was reading this, the, the, the concept of doublethink from Orwell's 1984 uh, came to mind. That, that, that to understand the war, you do have to keep in mind two contradictory concepts at the same time. The war is uh, a just war and an unjust war. It is a war of almost unlimited violence and of, of careful boundaries. Uh, and it's not even one that progresses from one to the other. You quoted Mark Grimsley or cited Mark a minute ago, but you make yeah. the point in this book, it's not a, a, a linear progression from a controlled war in 1861 to a much less limited war in 65. It, it seems to go up and down depending where you are. It does. I mean, a part of what you know we need to remember as we think about it is just how big the scale of the conflict is. Um, you know, you've got a coastline of 3,000 miles and a, and a geographic landmass larger than continental Europe, and we're still dealing with, although there's a, a kind of emerging modern communications infrastructure, it's, it's really quite decentralized, and the result is that people often don't know what's going on in other places, and so sort of design their own ways through it at, at moments. I mean, the other thing is that I think it's easy um, to imagine that all wars inevitably escalate, and mm-hmm. that bitterness builds, and people sort of inevitably come to hate and despise their enemy and sanction greater and greater violence. But it's important to remember that, that in 1863, the Union adopts the General Order Number 100, which is the Libra Code, that spells out very clearly what Union soldiers can and cannot do, and that after that point, it's in fact easier to prosecute soldiers within the Union Army, and they are prosecuted for violations of that. And that wasn't present in 1861. Um, I mean, there's no question that the scale of, of death increases as more men are drawn in as the war extends in time. But it's also important to recognize that there are ways that people put a break very consciously on the, the escalation of the war. Um, and they do this, as you say, at different points in time throughout the conflict. And I think it's... it's um, but I mean, what emerged to me is that we need to disrupt 
kind of, uh, I would say, sort of standard or easy assumptions about how wars um, uh, evolve and particularly how they escalate. Well, that that's a, another sort of motif that recurs throughout the book is you you cite what current or well-known past historians have said on something and and challenge it and suggest we look at it differently. Uh, the Libra Code is certainly has certainly not escaped historians' attention. Uh, it does it, it did regulate what Union soldiers were allowed to do or purported to do. So, how effective was the code? Did you find? Well, I mean, I think it's hard to say, and this is, I mean, there certainly are historians that think it wasn't effective at all. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I mean, Halleck had, you know, tens of thousands of copies distributed. He was at the time general-in-chief, and when, um, and he tells people, I mean, especially, most famously, his successor in Missouri, where he had had such a terrible time trying to organize um, and secure that place, that he says, you should consult, you know, General Orders Number 100. This is the best guide we now have. Um What's important, I think, is that the Union um, uh, does prosecute its soldiers, that there is a system for maintaining this, and that by publicly announcing what they can and cannot do, it creates a standard that is useful for Southern civilians, Confederate civilians, who now know what are the rules that I can expect, and so they can sort of use that. Um, I mean, I, there, there are, there's a fascinating sequence of exchanges here in Baton Rouge, actually, which is occupied by the Union in 1862. Um, and I was, I was going through Hill's, the, the, the Special Collections Library here at LSU, and they have all these broadsides that the provost marshal had posted around town, and most of them have to do with sort of commonplace things if you're in an occupied place. Don't sell alcohol to Union soldiers. Mm-hmm. Um, that sort of appears repeatedly, but there's a, a proclamation that the provost marshal issues that says, if a soldier comes to your house, and claims to be part of the provost guard and enters the house and then seizes something, you have a right to ask him for identification and for proof that he's with the provost guard. And so it was a way of both putting civilians on notice about what the limits that soldiers are supposed to observe and to say to the soldiers, the civilians know this as well. They know and they know that you know. And so you have, I think, a much more um, robust system for pushing against those excesses when they happen because there is this public conversation about what's acceptable. So it's kind of hard to quantify, I would say, the Libra Code, but I don't think, um, I think it's certainly a net improvement in terms of the public discussion of what's acceptable in the war. The examples you give there are from, from an occupied town, and you make the point that uh, in an occupied town, first you have more contact soldiers and, and uh, southern, northern soldiers and southern civilians than you would uh, uh, campaigning in the countryside. But you, so you have more opportunity for for both negative or positive interaction. Uh, and well, talk about the, the implications of, of occupation. How how did that work out? Yeah, well, occupation is, is one of these places that where things get, get quite squirrely, um, mm-hmm. to use a word that's kind of a metaphorical <laughs> dodge. Um, the, um, you know, I, I mean, I start the, the discussion of occupation in, in New Orleans, which is occupied in April by Ben Butler. Um, he's still not very popular down here. And, you know, I've got students that claim to have grandparents with chamber pots with shaped, you know, Butler's, Butler's uh, face on them. Um, but I would say in, in actuality that Butler ran, I mean, notwithstanding whatever he and his brother might or might not have, have stolen 
uh, Spoons was one of his nicknames, right? right. But um, notwithstanding, notwithstanding that, Butler um, recognized when he arrives here and the Confederate Army has fled that it is important, not just for his soldiers, but for civilian order, for him to be uh, sort of firm and vigilant when he first arrives. And there's a famous episode where he hangs a man, John Mumford, who had, who, had just, who had pulled down the Union flag that was raised by the Navy when they first seized the city. And everyone assumes that Mumford is going to be paroled and, and pardoned, and he isn't. He's executed. And um, Butler writes back to D.C. Um, and, you know, sort of says, I stand by that decision. It was essential in order to pacify the town. Um, and that's the only such execution. There are, in fact, executions of criminals, both Union soldiers and civilians, that Mm-hmm. The, the Confederate New Orleanians are quite happy with, though he doesn't tend to get much credit for that. Um, so I think in those places where Union commanders were able to establish um, sort of clear lines of authority, um, the, the um, further violence is usually kept to a minimum. And this is, in fact, most places. Um, uh, but that doesn't mean that... that um, Civilians aren't subject to hardship. When Sherman occupies Memphis, he ends up expelling um, Confederate women, I mean, dozens, not a lot of women, but women whose husbands are in the Army or whose husbands are guerrillas, and they're crossing the lines, and they're um, sort of pushing the boundaries. And expulsion is a pretty serious problem for somebody, you know, who who a woman and her children are going to have to leave the community and go find their way. So, um, in general, I think occupation was, was conducted... Um, uh, sort of fairly and with, with much less violence than we might imagine, but it also seems to me that most of these places were sort of powder kegs and that, you know, one wrong step, as happened here in Baton Rouge, and, and things can go awry quite quickly. Um, and, and so we didn't have really any of those sort of serious escalating problems, but it, we certainly could have. People in New Orleans then, and as you say, even today, regard Butler, uh, or that that both governments deployed during the war is is another interesting point because uh, when they say the the city was destroyed or uh, this was the most outrageous thing, you know, the the dark history of war reveals nothing like what just happened. Uh, right. In fact, the these turn out to be in most cases uh, uh, grotesque exaggerations. Yeah, I mean, I, I was, you know, as I was writing this, I found myself returning to books and books that I like and that I've learned a lot from, but finding um, a surprising amount of imprecision, um, particularly in books that aren't sort of specifically on violence, but are kind of broader mm-hmm. histories of the war, and they use things like, this town was demolished, or this town was destroyed, or, um, and, you know, when, when you get down to it, it's often, um, yeah, much less than what those um, sort of dramatic verbs would lead readers to believe. And, um, and so, you know, if we're, if we're reading backwards from Dresden or from the firebombing of Tokyo um, and thinking that's what it looks like to demolish a town, well, that never happened in the Civil War. Mm-hmm. It was a very different kind of conflict. And that's another point that you make throughout to uh, contextualize the Civil War uh, across time, but also across place, to look at other examples of warfare in the 19th century and uh, uh, compare, say, the uh, the Indian Rebellion or Indian Mutiny, as it used to be called, in 1857 yeah. uh, in British India. How instructive is that comparison? 
Well, I thought it, I mean, I, I thought it was useful mostly because the people that are living through the U.S. Civil War are referring to it constantly um, <laughs> as just about everybody in the United States, and they had followed that event quite carefully, but they all seem to know that many of the leaders of the, the mutiny, as it was called, these are sepoy troops, the, the, they're Indians who are members of the British Army in India, and they had rebelled in 1857, and many of their leaders and the officers that, that ho- ho- helped that were executed in, in sort of truly horrendous ways, tied to the mm. mouths of cannon and the cannons discharged. And so the, the question of how do you take prisoners and how do you then deal with um, these people, um, either once they are captured or at the end of hostilities, um, Americans know what the global treatment is. And so particularly Northerners, um, when they compare themselves to the British, uh, basically pat themselves on the back. Um, in early 1862, when the British are criticizing northern war policies, they, the, the Harper's Weekly reruns all of William Howard Russell's dispatches from uh, India, including the woodcuts of these uh, woodcut illustrations of these people being blown out of cannons, and then concludes this long sequence by saying, are, are we really going to be lectured about morality by the British, um, given what their record is? And so... The, the North uses that as a kind of shield to defend their own conduct. Um, and, I mean, I do think that, that sort of in terms of what's happening in the mid-century, uh, the American experience looks like an unusual one for the level of restraint. Certainly nothing like it is seen in China during the Taiping re- uh, Rebellion or at the end of the uh, Paris Commune, you know, a few years later in 1871. Another uh, comparison that, that comes up internationally is the uh, the revolution in, in Haiti against the French earlier in the century. And I want to come back to that. We'll take a, a short break, but uh, there's another opportunity to discuss how the war was in some ways less violent than it, uh, than it might have, easily might have been, and that less violent in some ways than many expected it to be uh, in, yeah. in the dimension of, of slave violence. But we'll, we'll take a short break, come back with that question with our guest, who tonight is Aaron Sheehan-Dean, author of The Calculus of Violence, How Americans Fought the Civil War. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Attention, if you're a parent, educator, social worker, or civic or religious leader, the most important program you'll hear this week is Exploited, Crimes Against Humanity. Host Opal Singleton and her guest show how our children and others are being dangerously lured by predators through the dark web, social media apps, and games. Beyond that, the program looks at trends in human trafficking and more. You'll never think of the Internet the same way again. Listen Thursdays at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between, discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. 
These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich talking with Aaron Sheehan-Dean, author of The Calculus of Violence, How Americans Fought the Civil War. Uh, Aaron, one of the, the major points that, that comes up in, in multiple times in your work is emphasizing the absence of a slave insurrection, to use a, a word favorite at the time, uh, a fear that was in people's minds, both North and South, uh, white people in the North and in the South, uh, expected that there might well be uh, an uprising when the institution of slavery came under such severe threat as it did during the war. Why do you suppose that did not take place? And, and what was the effect? Well, I think, I mean, the effect is very important. The effect is, is that it limits the violence of the war enormously. I think we could easily imagine a, a two- or threefold increase in the number of fatalities if the kind of insurrection that white Southerners are constantly prophesizing had manifested. Um, given that you've got 4 million enslaved people and 5 million white people in the South. I mean, those are reasonably even odds. Um, and I think that's, yeah, that is the sort of biggest single factor that limits the violence of the Civil War is the decision of enslaved people to pursue freedom and not to pursue revenge. I think it draws on several elements. One, of course, is just the strategic uh, environment in which uh, enslaved people are operating, which is that white people in the South have a monopoly on violence and weapons and intelligence. If there's a Confederate army anywhere nearby where you're, you are and you're trying to escape, that army is functionally a giant slave patrol. The regular slave patrols that, of course, diminished during the war because the men were off fighting. But the army itself, Lee's army famously in, in Virginia, but also in Pennsylvania and Maryland, chases down and captures both runaway slaves and also free black people and brings them back into slavery in Virginia. So there are a great deal of risks of sort of spending your time either plotting or executing revenge. Um, and there is also, I think, a, a kind of interest in securing um, whatever claim to citizenship black people can manage. Frederick Douglass famously says, once let the black man get those buttons on his shoulder or that U.S. on his belt buckle and no power on earth can keep him from citizenship. And... Um, Black people in the United States understood the importance of military service as an aspect of male citizenship and knew that if they did perform, as they did, 200,000, um, fight in the Army and Navy for the United States and provide a crucial measure of support late in the war, 
that doing that, I mean, they can execute violence, as it were, against Confederates, but they do so through the institution of the army. Um, and that that is, in the long run, a much more strategically wise thing to do. And I think you had mentioned Haiti. Um, mm-hmm. I do think that there's evidence that they are tapping into a, a longer sort of Caribbean tradition of pursuing freedom through martial means, not through irregular violence, but through forming themselves into armies to resist what they consider the injustice of slavery. And that's what the United States offers them. So we don't see the same kind of, uh, the, we don't see a, a Nat Turner in, in, in a vastly expanded scale taking place. And, and that could have been, as you say, much, much worse in terms of number of casualties. Let me ask a, a different kind of question uh, about your research process. Uh, without naming names, I can think of a, an author who writes a lot of books on Civil War military history. Uh, they're very well researched in the sense that he reads lots of letters and diaries, uh, clips the relevant quotes from them, strings them together, uh, uses them to support his assertions. Uh, I find it problematic because if you clip things from letters and diaries, you can pretty much prove most <laughs> things that you want. Um, if you, if that's your strategy, start with your conclusion, then go yeah. looking for bits of evidence. Uh, this, your arguments are too broad to ever assemble a, a comprehensive database that would support them in a you know, numerical sense. How did you? How did you think about researching this? Um, yeah, well, that's a generous way of, of, of recognizing what was, I think, probably a haphazard system. I mean, I, I, I think that I started, as I say, writing that essay and then realizing that I wanted to try to understand how white Southerners themselves sort of represented the, what they were experiencing. And so one of the places that I went was the Union Provost Marshal records, and most of us know the Provost Marshal from, I mean, the Provost Marshal is a, is a wing of the United States Army, and they handle conscription in the North. But in the South, the Provost Marshal functioned as the on-the-ground kind of law officer and the one managing occupation. And it turns out that there are, there's just box after box after box of Provost Marshal records, um, you know, for the Department of the Gulf, that is Louisiana for 1862, there's 23 boxes or something, and each box holds, you know, 400 slips of paper. And I began in a very unsystematic way of just trying to read through a lot of that material, um, which I did for the Department of Cumberland, the Department of Virginia, the Department of Tennessee, trying to see how do regular people, when they're, when they're sort of reporting on their experiences back to union officers, do they expect those, uh, if they, they find they've been wronged by a soldier, do they expect some kind of compensation? Do they expect an investigation? Um, and, and I sort of, started with that very broad sense of just what am I seeing, um, and then moved to different bodies of evidence. So on the question of enslaved people, I, you know, sort of tried to read my way through the, the George Raywick's composite autobiography, composite set of volumes about um, slavery from the WPA narratives, looking particularly at those instances in which they talk about emancipation or escape or violence. Um, so I have to admit that for a long time it was a very unsystematic um, sort of research strategy of, of, you know, I read through the Ulysses Grant papers and, and Robert E. Lee's and Jefferson Davis and Abraham Lincoln's, trying to see, well, with, for each of these people, how does their engagement with these issues of violence change over time? 
Um, and it was only after a lot of that that I was able to start identifying what I thought were the kind of analytical um, linkages and the structures that helped make, you know, make it possible to write the narrative. And um, it, uh, but it was a book that took a long time, partly because it just needed to sort of simmer in my brain and, and come together. Were there moments where some preconceived uh, piece of that structure or concept uh, ran into the evidence and had to be uh, seriously adjusted? Um, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of, I mean, there's a lot. I'm trying to think of what would be mm-hmm. the most useful, you know, uh, uh, thing to talk about. I think, you know, I was expecting, um, well, for instance, with sieges, um, and that's, mm-hmm. that's one of the stories I tell because it's one of the important right. ways that armies interact with civilians that has a great deal of potential for violence. And I assume, mm-hmm. for instance, that Sherman's bombardment of Atlanta, which goes on for um, a month and is basically a round-the-clock artillery bombardment, um, that that would have yielded enormous casualties, um, and that whatever you know claims about Sherman in the post-war and the burning of Atlanta would be the bombardment that would have generated the most death. And in fact, the bombardment kills about 20 people. Um, mm. And it's kind of a shockingly low number. I'm not trying to make light of those 20 people. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the sieges in the Taiping Civil War that are contemporaneous with the U.S., in which the Chinese forces will sort of barricade a city and let it cook for two and a half months until cholera kills everyone, and they open the gates, and there are 20,000 dead civilians inside. I mean, that's, un, that's unimaginable in North America at the time. I mean, you know, Sherman's, uh, Sherman's attack on Atlanta yielded as Stephen Davis has, has, I think, proved in his book what the Yankees did to us, 20 deaths. Um, And so then trying to think about, well, um, maybe, you know, sieges are so routine and matter-of-fact, My I was expecting to see a lot of kind of anguish discussion in the Northern High Command about, should we do this? Do we have the legitimate right to? And there's almost silence on every one of these because they understand the laws of war, and the laws of war say, if you as a defender, back up into a city, you're responsible for whatever damage is done to civilians in the event the enemy attacks you here. Um, and in fact, both sides understood that, um, you know, which is why Lee doesn't really protest the, the shelling of Petersburg, because he understands that he's the one who's putting those civilians in harm's way. Um, so I was surprised at a lot of points, I guess I will say. I was surprised mm-hmm. by the degree to which common people knew and understood the laws of war. And, and, and the kind of the intricacies of the laws of war, um, the law of retaliation as a subset of that. And so um, that certainly plays an important role in shaping how the war happens. There, there is uh, a great deal more than we have touched on in this book. Uh, it, it's a, a book uh, with a lot of thought uh, in it that will cause the reader to think a long time. Let me unfairly ask you a 15-minute question and give you 45 seconds to answer. The, um, okay. You make the point early on about American exceptionalism and that we uh, Americans tend to have a comfortable idea of uh, the war being fought by by gentlemanly means for the most part. Uh, it's a uniquely American experience, the, the way the country comes back together afterward. Uh, and you, you challenge it. You say we need to look at an international uh, perspective. But from the examples, from the 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 rebellion in India in 1857, the Taiping Rebellion, you decided with the massive civilian casualties. Uh, do we end up thinking there actually is something exceptional about this experience? 
Yeah, I, I do think that there is something um, exceptional, quite unusual in comparison to other 19th century civil and national conflicts. The scale of death is much lower. But I would say that a big part of the reason that happens is because the United States is deeply engaged in the rest of the world. So both the North and the South work very hard to curry the favor of Europeans, and they do so in large part by trying to trumpet their own adherence to the laws of war, to the prisoners they take instead of execute, to the hospital treatment they give to their enemies. So um, it is unusual, and it's exceptional in terms of the dynamic, but I think it doesn't derive from a kind of innate American virtue. It derives partly from America's very... Uh, a long-standing and, and durable engagement with other people around the world. So the uh, the outcome, fortunately, is is that you don't see massive numbers of civilian casualties. You don't see uh, the kinds of things that become routine in this in the twentieth century. And uh, in that sense, uh, Mark Neely certainly made that argument against the total war concept that you don't see deliberate targeting of civilians. Uh, and where you do, they get exaggerated so that the 20 Atlanta civilians become, uh, uh, become as you say, another right. Dresden when it's nothing like that. Uh, so where do you go from here? What Do you have another project? Uh, and I, I do. I mean, so I actually have, have got a, a sort of short book, much shorter, um, which is fine by me, that's, that's <laughs> out with readers right now that seeks to do more of this kind of global comparison, and it's a, it's mm-hmm. a much more thorough kind of uh, integration of the American Civil War in the context of the conflicts around the world. So more on the Sepoy and the Taiping Rebellion and then the Polish insurrection of 1863. Mm-hmm. Um, all these events were contemporaneous, and they, I found as I was up at the archives this last summer and, and doing reading in newspapers, Americans are, are fully versed in these other conflicts and are um, comparing and using the language of one to another. I mean, I think we have not properly appreciated the way in which what it means to be a rebel or a bandit or an insurrectionist, that those conversations, Americans are involved in global conversations about what's legitimate. Um, you know, the Italians who eventually achieved uh, autonomy and, and nationhood in 1860, for the longest time the British newspapers refer to them as the banditti. Um, yes. And it's only quite sort of slowly that they come to say, oh, no, these are nationalists, uh, uh, which is, of course, a good thing in the mid-19th century. And so trying to figure out how those conversations sort of come together, because Americans are right in, Americans and Confederates, I guess I would say, are right in the mainstream in the mid-19th century, this turbulent era of sovereignty making and unmaking. Well, there is uh, a lot about those topics uh, more to be done certainly but there's a huge amount of really stimulating material in this book the calculus of violence how americans fought the civil war its author was our guest tonight aaron shehan dean uh, readers you will want to get a copy of this book it is uh, it, i don't think you'll be able to have an intelligent conversation about the meaning of the war without being familiar with it so uh, so so get go get one Uh, Aaron, thank you so much for being on the show tonight. Thanks, Jerry. It was a real pleasure. I appreciate it. And listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.